All right, if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles, we're going to start in uh, John chapter 21. John chapter 21 is where we're going to start. We are going to go to a couple different places, though, but that's where we're going to begin this morning. You know, it's really cool uh, somehow how, um, sometimes how we can really see God's hand in things. So what I mean by that is this morning, you know, we had the the Word of Life kids up here getting their, their awards for Christian service, for learning the Bible, memorizing Bible verses, um, doing all these different things. Uh, and what we're going to be talking about this morning, we're going to see in a little bit, you're going to see how it kind of fits right in with what we're going to be talking about. And it's really kind of cool how when I was, you know, when I was working on this, planning this, um, I knew a while back that this was going to be, their award ceremony was going to be happening this morning, but I'd forgotten about it uh, when I was doing this. So it's really cool uh, how God is, uh, he has his hands and things like that. So uh, what we're going to be talking about this morning, though, we're going to be looking uh, at a few examples. We're going to look at four different disciples this morning. And really, we're going to be asking ourselves a question. And that question is, do we have what it takes? All right, do we have what it takes? And as I said, we're going to look at a handful of some of the disciples and their stories to see if we have what it takes to be a disciple of Christ and, w- and what that means to be a disciple of Christ. And I think many times a lot of us can admit, uh, whether you know, out loud or to ourselves, that uh, many times in our lives we've questioned whether or not we're worthy of what we know that God's calling us to do, whatever that might be. And for, uh, for all of us, it's going to be something different. Obviously, as, as followers of Christ, as Christians, we're all called to take the gospel to the whole world, to the ends of the earth, uh, and make disciples. But beyond that, we all have our own individual calls. And there's probably been plenty of times in each and every one of our lives where we've thought that just the way that we are, our, our life, the decisions we've made, uh, that we're not worthy of whatever it is that God's called us to do. Um, and again, so for some of us, that might be volunteering in a ministry. You know, we were able to see some, some volunteer uh, people with the Word of Life kids up here this morning. Uh, for some of us, uh, that could be just sharing the gospel with somebody, whether it's a family member, a friend, a coworker, whoever that might be. Um, or maybe there's even somebody here this morning who, because of that, and, and become what we call a Christian, because of, well, maybe my past, it, it, I've, the things that I've done, um, I, I'm, not, I'm not a good enough person, my past is unforgivable. And, and we're going to be going through and looking at some of the disciples and maybe seeing how uh, maybe one or two or maybe all the ones that we look at, how we're able to relate to them. Um, but as we look at this group of men who spent three years with Jesus in his earthly ministry, serving alongside him, learning from him in large crowds, one-on-one settings, um, and also being integral parts of the early church, the beginning of what we know as the church, uh, we're going to see that they all had their flaws as well. So we're going to look at uh, the difference that Jesus made in their lives and how they were able to be followers of Christ and the followers of Christ that they were called to be. So the first one that we're going to be looking at is Peter. I said we're going to be in John chapter 21, but before we jump into the text there, uh, I want to just kind of, we'll get a little bit of background on each of the guys that we're going to look at this morning. And background on Peter is a lot of times when we look and we see in the, in the Gospels, as we're seeing the disciples kind of listed, Peter, he's, a lot of times he's mentioned first. He's listed first. Uh, we know as we read through different stories of the disciples in Jesus, um, or even just a, a few weeks ago, week before Easter, last time I was able to preach, we kind of talked a lot about Peter, uh, and we understood that he was really a leader among the disciples. He was kind of their spokesman. Uh, he, he was kind of their go-between between the rest of them and Jesus. Uh, we know that he was a fisherman. Um, and there's a couple interesting things about Peter that, 
almost kind of seem contradictory because we also know as we read through the Gospels, we see that he uh, asked Jesus a bunch of questions. He asked them a bunch of things based on things that they've just witnessed, maybe things that Jesus just taught them. He asked questions about that. But at the same time, he also seems to be a pretty impulsive person, just kind of go without asking questions. Um, Sometimes that helped him, sometimes that hurt him. And because of that kind of contradictory uh, aspect, he was a little bit unsteady. Um, And uh, we also know that he was even rebuked by Jesus. But basically, we, we know that G, uh, Peter, he was a really bold kind of guy, um, so much so that he, you know, cut off a man's ear, said that he would die for Jesus, and then not even long after that, ended up denying him after he said he would never do that. So let's go ahead and jump into Peter's story here in John chapter 21, and we're going to see how Peter kind of struggled with his past. So John chapter 21, and we're going to read uh, verses 3 through 19. So John 21, verse 3. So Simon Peter saith unto him, I go a fishing. They say unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? They answered him, No. And he said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loves saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girt his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked, and did cast himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land, but it was, but as it were two hundred cubits, dragging the net with fishes. As soon then as they were came, come to the land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon in bread. Jesus saith unto them, Bring of the fish which ye have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land, full of great fishes, and hundred and fifty-three. And for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. Jesus saith unto them, Come and dine. And none of the disciples durst ask him, Who art thou? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then cometh and taketh bread and giveth them and fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after that he was risen from the dead. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he had said unto him the third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, feed my sheep. Verily, verily, I say unto you, unto thee, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and and walkest whither thou goest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands and another shall gird thee. And carried thee whither thou wouldst go. This spake he signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, follow me. So we're going to go into this passage and, and kind of look at a couple different aspects of what's going on here. And kind of understand, uh, maybe get an understanding of how it was that Peter struggled with his past. Um, at the very beginning of this passage, and, and as we read through it, we saw that this was already after Jesus had died. He had already risen from the dead, and this was the third time that he actually showed himself to the disciples after he had risen from the dead. 
Um, but we, we started reading about how Peter said he was going to go fishing. He told the other disciples, I'm going to go fishing. And uh, we know that before he was a follower of Jesus, he, he was a fisherman then as well. And so what he's doing here is he's, it's, it's probably kind of a, an occupational kind of a decision to go fishing again, to get back into it. Um, but you also want to think about the fact that, again, Jesus had just died. He's already showed himself to them twice. And he's pretty much told them, this is what I want you to do now. Go forth, take the gospel to the ends of the earth, make disciples of me. And these are all things that, that Jesus kind of charged them with. And Peter, he decided that he was going to go and go back to fishing. So again, this is, like I said, this was uh, maybe an occupational decision, um, or it could have been, you know, kind of trying to get his mind off things, kind of a decision. Either way, he was a leader of the disciples, as we already kind of covered. And the fact that he went and did this, the other disciples, they followed him and they went. And so we see that he's, he's maybe not focused exactly on what he needs to be doing or something is kind of distracting him from wanting to follow through uh, with what he's been called to do. And as a result, the people who look to him as a leader, they're kind of doing the same thing. But if we go a little bit further down as we read throughout, uh, as we read throughout this passage, we see in verses 4 through 8 where they're fishing and they're not catching anything. And then this person from the shore that calls out and says, go ahead and throw your, your nets onto the other side. Well, this uh, is the second time that this has really happened to them. If we were to go back into Luke uh, chapter 5 and verses five and 1 through 11, the same kind of thing happened here. So Jesus kind of, uh, if, if they're not able to figure it out, he's kind of giving them hints of, it's me because I'm the same one who told you to throw nets on the other side uh, because they had been fishing all night and they weren't able to catch anything. And as this is happening, Peter's reminded of who he was and his original calling. Because as we, if we go back and we look and see how, G, this is when, in Luke chapter 5, that's when Luke called Peter to be a follower of him. That was when he was called to be a disciple of Jesus. And he was fishing and, and they came in and Jesus talked to him and said, I want you to be a fisher of men. And that's, so that's that, that famous passage that we hear about all the time. And that's what is really kind of being almost replayed right here. And in a way, what Jesus is doing, he's reminding Peter, remember what I called you to do. I called you, I said that I was going to make you fishers of men. And now you're back out here, you're back out fishing for just regular old fish. But he's reminded of who he was, a follower of Christ, and he's also reminded of what his original calling was. But then we also, if we continue to read through the passage, uh, we see Peter being reminded of another instance in his life. We see Peter reminded of his greatest disappointment. If we read through uh, verses 9 through 19 in this chapter, we see that they come to the shore and they see Jesus there. He has a fire burning. He's got some food there. And um, if we were to go real quick, turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. And we're going to see a comparison of what's going on here and what's happening. I'm just going to read real quick Luke chapter 22, verse 55 says, and when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall and were set down together, Peter sat down among them. Now, this is really Peter's biggest probably regret, uh, his greatest disappointment in himself throughout his entire life. And what happens after this verse that we just read is when Peter denies Jesus three times. And so, and actually, it's really kind of cool. I, I never uh, had, had no, realized this before, had known this before. A couple weeks ago, uh, when we were doing our men's Bible study, uh, it was done by Tony Evans. He was talking about uh, the only two times the, the Greek word that is used here in John chapter 21 and in Luke chapter 22, when it's talking about that fire that was made, a, a charcoal fire. He said that the only time in the whole New Testament that those are used is those two passages. And so really what's happening here is 
it, Jesus, again, he's recreating a scene almost from Peter's past. He's already recreated his calling when he tells him to throw the nets to the other side. You'll be able to catch some fish. We've already seen that here in John chapter 21. And now he comes to the shore and they're sitting around this fire. And the last time we read about Peter sitting around a fire is when he ended up denying Jesus three different times. And so really what we're kind of seeing is maybe the reason why Peter was going back to fishing Maybe the reason why he went back to that, whether it was an occupational decision or whether it was a recreational kind of decision, like I just want to get away, uh, either way, he's not focused on the call that Jesus gave him. And maybe he's thinking about, you know, the fact that he's disappointed not only himself, but he's disappointed Jesus by denying him three times. Maybe he's thinking because of that, he's not the guy that Jesus was looking for when he called him to be, you know, a fisher of men, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and to be that leader that he knew he was supposed to be. So what's our response? What's the response that we should have when we see that, uh, maybe comparing our own personal lives with Peter? Well, first of all, we need to remember our call. And I mentioned earlier about how each and every one of us, if we're a follower of Christ, we know we've been called to take the gospel, take the truth of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, whether that means we physically travel all around the earth, if that's something that you feel that God's actually called you to do, go for it. But we can also have an impact in the area around us, and we can impact the ends of the earth by providing for missions. We have missionaries. If you go out in the, in the lobby here when we go to leave today, you're going to see we have a missionary wall of all the different missionaries that we support as a church. And so that's another way how we're able to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, even if God has called us to be physically here, you know, in Goodland Township, in Lapeer County. Um, so remember our call. Again, as Christians, we know what our call is. But each, like I said before, each and every one of us also has a specific call. What are you called to do specifically? And kind of talked a little bit about this yesterday in the men's prayer breakfast about how we've all been given different talents, different abilities, different spiritual gifts. We all have different uh, occupations, different vocations that we all take part in, or maybe even hobbies. And in those different areas, we have influence on certain groups of people. And in each one of those groups of people that we have an influence on, we can be called to take the gospel to them specifically. And we can have our own ministry in anything. It doesn't have to be just within the church here. You can have a ministry at your workplace. You can have a ministry with your family. Um, and so remember our call. That's the first response that we should probably have. Also, we should renew our view of God. Now, what does that mean, Review or renew our view of God? Well, as we, if we were to read back through John chapter 21, we're going to see when Jesus is kind of reminding Peter of these past, you know, things that took place, he's also reminding him of, I was the God who called you to do this. I'm still the God who, I, that miracle happened when you were fishing that day, you threw your nest to the other side, and all of a sudden you caught all kinds of, all kinds of fish. And if you go back, and then out today, same thing happened. Same thing with, he's doing all these amazing miracles. If we read through, you know, Luke chapter 5 at the very beginning when, when Jesus calls him, Jesus really wanted him to be, you know, part of his group. He really wanted to recruit Peter. As we read through there, Jesus, he even kind of stepped onto Peter's boat. Like he was really going after him, really wanted Peter. Now, stepping on Peter's boat, he was probably a little bit thrown off by him doing that, right? Uh, you know, I like to fish pretty often, and I know that fishermen, uh, they're really protective of their spot, right? I have a secret spot. Everybody has a secret spot, right? Whether it's a fishing, fishing spot. But, and so you get really kind of protective of that. And if that gets out, you get, you know, you run into certain, the, the wrong guys, they're going to be pretty upset about it. I can only imagine what it would be like if you just hopped on somebody else's boat as well, right? If I were to just, you know, while I'm out there, just hop on and be like, it's cool if I just join you guys, right? I'm just going to be hanging out on your boat. But Jesus, he's taking that extra step. He's going out reaching for Peter saying, I want you to follow me. 
And and with Jesus kind of repeating these miracles, he's reminding him of this past of what he did. He's the same God who's called him to do this. And maybe as he's doing that, he's remembering all the great things that he saw Jesus do in his earthly ministry. So he's renewing his view of God, remembering this is the God that I was called to serve. And that's the same thing for us. Maybe we've, you know, are thinking, well, you know, the, the past things that I've done, you know, I, I, can't, I can't serve God in a certain way. Or the past things I've done, my sins are unforgivable. I can't be saved. He's the exact same God that we've, we've put our faith in before. And he's, he's carried us through crazy circumstances before. Why is it that now we think he can't use us in this area because we think we have a weakness in this area? The fact is he's the exact same God who saved us before. So renew our view of God. Remember the God that we're serving. And then finally, rest in the freedom of secure forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is doing by, again, he's reminding him. He's kind of putting that fire. He didn't come out and say, hey, Peter, remember that time that you denied me three times? He's almost kind of doing it subtly. He's kind of setting the scene so that Peter almost has like, you know, one of those flashbacks and thinks back to the last time he was sitting around a fire like this. And he's telling Peter, listen, I'm still calling you to be the same person. I'm still calling you to do the same thing as I was three years ago. It doesn't matter what you did when you denied me. I'm still calling you because I forgive you. And so we can rest in the freedom of the secure forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. So those are our responses that we should have. But really the truth that we learn from Peter's story is that it's not our past, but Christ's past that determines our future. And what do I mean by Christ's past? The fact that he died on a cross for our sins. And if we put our faith and trust in him, we have the power of the Holy Spirit working through us to do whatever it is that he calls us to do. So that was Peter. The second guy that we're going to look at is Matthew. So if you want to go ahead and turn real quick to Matthew chapter 9. That's where we're going to get a little bit of Matthew's story. A little bit of a background on Matthew. Um, He wrote the book of Matthew, if you could believe that. Um, So Matthew, he's, uh, he's another interesting disciple. Um, and really, if you kind of look at the culture at the time, a guy like Matthew, if we were to kind of think of, okay, the Messiah that was foretold from the Old Testament, he's on the earth now. Now he's trying to seek out a group of followers to serve with him in his ministry. And we tried to put together maybe a dream team of what those kind of people would look like. Matthew wouldn't be one of those guys that we would look to. Uh, the reason for that is he was a tax collector. And even back then, people didn't like tax collectors. We don't like them now. They didn't like them back then. A little bit different aspect of tax collectors back then is a lot of times tax collectors, that occupation was almost considered to be synonymous with sinners. Um, you might say that's not, how, that's not different than how I think about tax collectors now. But the fact is that's, uh, that's kind of how people looked at them. Um, he was a self-educated man. Um, but also tax collectors, they were known for collecting extra money and then pocketing the difference. We see that a couple times as we read uh, throughout the Gospels especially. But I want to look at, um, at Matthew's story. And again, as I said, in many ways, his profession was synonymous with being a sinner. Um, and we're going to, what we're, the passage we're looking at here is Matthew's calling. We kind of touched a little bit on Peter's calling to follow after Jesus. We're going to look at Matthew's calling. So Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 9 through 12. It says there, And as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom, and he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. So, as we look at Matthew's calling, um, it's really interesting the fact that, you know, he's sitting there, and Jesus, he comes up and he says, Follow me. And then there's no... There's no 
time in between, like Matthew, you know, he, he went home, prayed about it, thought about it. It said, Jesus said, follow me, and he arose and followed him. He just immediately got up and left. So Jesus called, Matthew immediately followed. But also, we know that Matthew, he gave up a life of pleasure. Because even though people looked at him, looked down on him, if he was your typical tax collector, he was probably pretty well off. Whether he was collecting taxes uh, legally or by the book or not, he probably you know, had a pretty nice life. He, he had what he needed and probably a little bit more. And so he gave up this life of pleasure and maybe there was things that were going on in his life where that's part of the reason why he just followed after Jesus immediately. The fact that maybe he was kind of reaching his breaking point with, with what he had going on. Um, but the fact that he gave up this life of pleasure, and if you were to look back um, in the Old Testament, we're not going to turn there and read the whole passage, but if you want to make note of it, in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Solomon, he talks about pleasure and what pleasures of life really are. And really what it boils down to is he talks about how the fact that these pleasures that this life has to offer they're all vain. And he talks really about the vanity of pleasure. And so, again, on the surface, the life that Matthew gave up, even though people didn't really think what he did was, you know, that good of a, a job to have, he had things. He had probably had things that other people wanted. And so he gave up this life of pleasure uh, and decided to go after Jesus. And uh, so really what happens here, there's a difference from finding Jesus. And what are the differences from, from Matthew finding Jesus? Well, first of all, perspective changes. Perspective changes. Where are we finding our satisfaction? Matthew was finding his satisfaction probably in the fact that he had nice things. He always had plenty of money, uh, whether he got it fairly or not. Um, and so the fact that, you know, Matthew leaves that life, leaves that job, and goes after and follows after Jesus. You know, right after he leaves, we hear or we read about how Jesus was sitting down to eat with a group of all these kind of people that people look down on. And uh, a lot of, if you were to read in different commentaries, a lot of scholars believe that he's actually at Matthew's house. Um, and so what's happening is he's eating with all these people and the Pharisees, again, they're doing Pharisee things and they come up and say to his other disciples, why does your master sit with these people? So they're kind of taking a jab at Jesus by saying that, but they're also kind of almost trying to rebuke the disciples. Like, why would you even want to follow a guy who does these kind of things? And so we see that they're, they're kind of throwing shade at them. They're, they're, they're poking at them and, and really trying to um, poke holes in the fact that Jesus is spending time with these people, that everyone in the, in the culture thinks of them all as sinners, regardless of what they do. But really, Matthew's perspective changes, and, and we see that the perspective change that Jesus influences this per perspective change by teaching right away. The Pharisees are, Pharisees are saying, why are you hanging out with these people? And Jesus is saying, well, listen, people who are healthy, they don't need a doctor. It's the people who are sick. And he goes on in verse 13 to say basically that he's come for the people who need him. And these people, the people that you consider to be sinners, they need me. And so Matthew, he's watching all of this unfold. And his perspective is changing of where, where should his satisfaction be coming from? Like Jesus is kind of saying things, and Matthew's probably thinking, yeah, I like what he's saying. These things make sense, what he's saying. These probably things that Matthew hadn't really thought of before. But also his perspective changes, and with that perspective change, his priorities change. His priorities changed of, I don't care the fact that I'm giving up this really good job, you know, whether people like it or not. I'm, I don't care that I'm giving up this job because what I see that's important is that I need to follow this guy and continue to learn from him. There's something special about this guy. He just got right up and followed after him. So putting ourselves in Matthew's shoes, what do our hearts say about what we treasure most? 
What do our words and actions say about what we treasure most? Uh, because, and I think that, that second one, really kind of both of those together, um, a lot of us as Christians, you know, we come to church, we come here on Sunday mornings, and, and, we, and we hang out with each other, and we talk about uh, how was your last week, and, and, you know, we like to share and catch up with each other, or maybe we see one another throughout the week somewhere around town, and we really like to have our words and actions show that what we value most is Jesus, because they should show that. Our words and actions should show that we value Jesus most. But the reasons that they should show that is that it should be an overflow of our heart. So, yeah, everybody around us knows what our words and our actions say about what we treasure most, but only we know about ourselves, about what our heart truly treasures most. In Matthew, he's kind of, you know, things are kind of shaken up for him because he, again, he had this nice job. He, he gave it up. He's starting to get a different perspective on things. He's starting to understand things a little bit differently, and he's starting to realize that these things that he has, all this money, everything, it's all going to you know, be taken away in, in an instant. It can all be gone in an instant. Um, but also, finally, values change. And real quick, I'm going to uh, read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, if you want to turn there. Um, but if you want to just mark it down, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 1. It says, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in heaven. Basically, we know from reading in the Bible and even just experiencing life, things that we've had that we've you know, treasured, that we've enjoyed, they've been taken away from us for whatever, for whatever reason. And we know as we read through the Bible that none of these things are going to last. We can't take any of these things with us. And so our values need to change in the sense that we know that all this is going to go away. What am I investing myself into? Am I focusing on the things of God? Am I treasuring the things of God, not just with my words and actions, but also with my heart? So what is our response? Our response to, to Matthew is, will we rethink our values? Now, by rethinking, it doesn't mean that you just necessarily have to change your values. Maybe you have the right kind of values. You, you focus on God, and, and you try and serve him in every area. But rethinking our values means kind of basically taking inventory, taking a step back, asking God, God, show to me if there's anything in my life that I'm valuing above you, that I'm kind of idolizing over you. And then after that, how will we fix our eyes on Jesus? Because if we have our eyes fixed on Jesus, we're always going to be focused on him. We're not going to be distracted by these other things around us. We're not going to be pulled by something else. And uh, our, our, our values are going to be on the right things. And the truth that we learn from Matthew is that our true status is measured by our position in Christ and not our earthly possession or position. Because Matthew had kind of a, a weird you know, aspect in his life, the fact that he had all these nice things, right? But the reason he had these th nice things was because he did something that everybody hated him for. So his status among everybody else was not very good. Everybody looked down on what he did as being, a, he, was, he was just a sinner. His possessions, he probably had pretty nice possessions because of what he did. But none of that matters because all that is going to go away. All those are just earthly things. And so our true status is measured by our position in Christ and not in our earthly possession or position. And I think that's what Matthew basically picked up from Jesus almost right away. When they're all sitting around eating together, there's other publican sinners, people of, Matthew's, uh, people of Matthew's job sitting around there. And he's, he's understand, hearing what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. You know, you think about if, if tax collectors were looked upon as sinners, they probably heard a lot from the Pharisees. The Pharisees probably walked by anytime they had an interaction with them, probably never had a good interaction with them. 
And so he has Jesus saying these different things that are kind of counteracting what he's hearing from the Pharisees. And so he's starting to realize that it doesn't matter what I have, who I am in people's eyes. This guy, he's called me out. He's singled me out. He wants to serve. He wants me to follow after him. He wants to, to have a personal relationship with me. So that's, that's Peter, that's Matthew. Now we're going to look at another guy um, and a guy who probably from our aspect as the church and throughout church history hasn't always had the greatest uh, reputation. And when you hear his name, you probably think of negative things about him. And that would be Thomas. So for Thomas, we're going to be in John chapter 20. If you want to go ahead and turn there. John chapter 20. <clears throat> and uh, before we read in that passage, we're going to get a little bit of background on Thomas as well. Uh, now, so when I say Thomas, one of the things that probably comes to your mind is that he's referred to as Doubting Thomas. Um, all, stories about Thomas from the go- uh, all stories about Thomas, as we read through the Bible, all the stories about him are in the Gospel of John. Now, he's, he's named in the other three Gospels, but he's only, he only shows up in those Gospels um, in the list of the, when they list off who the disciples are. That's where he shows up in those Gospels. But all the stories that we read about Thomas are in the Gospel of John. Um, so a little bit of background there. Uh, and from what we know about Thomas, as we, we're going to read through here, but from what we probably know about him, uh, not the most optimistic guy, maybe a little bit pessimistic. Um, he was also called Didymus, which really is kind of uh, redundant because Didymus is, uh, is the, uh, basically it means twin, okay? And Thomas's name in Aramaic also means twin. So Didymus is just another, um, another name that means the exact same thing as him. Maybe they didn't like the sound of Thomas. I don't know. Maybe they just want to call him Didymus. Um, but so that's kind of what we know about Thomas's background. But in John chapter 20, we're going to read a few verses here. And really, this is the story that we probably all know Thomas for best. So John chapter 20 and verse 24. It says, But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said unto him, We have seen the Lord. But he said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days again his disciples were within, and Thomas with them. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, reach hither, that, reach hither thy finger, and behold my hands, and reach hither thy hand, and thrust it into my side, and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen me, and yet have believed. So that's Thomas's story. That's, again, that's the one that we probably all think about when we hear Thomas. Uh, that's what he's probably best known for. But really, he's, he's known for this, this doubt that he has, this doubt he doesn't believe. He happened to be gone. He wasn't with the disciples when Jesus first came back to them. And so he comes back, and they're like, you won't believe what just happened. Jesus was here. And Thomas, he just doesn't believe him. He doesn't believe him to the fact that he says, when I can actually see him and I can touch him and, and see him in person like that, then I'll believe. Okay? And so what I want to kind of talk about and take from Thomas is look at a couple truths about doubt. So the truth about doubt, first of all, doubt thrives in isolation, right? Doubt thrives in isolation. Now, in Thomas's case, he was the one isolated from the group, and Jesus came and he saw them, and he wasn't there. So he was isolated from the group. Now, for us, that doubt might come when we're isolating ourselves from fellow believers. 
Maybe for whatever reason we were not able to be in church for a while, or maybe we kind of get out of the habit of coming to church. We don't really communicate with, with fellow Christians. We don't communicate with really anybody from church, and we're really kind of isolating ourselves. And you know, a lot of people, they might say, well, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. That's true, but it helps, right? You, it, it's much better. Like everybody can probably think of a Sunday when they're, they're not able to be here for whatever reason. Maybe you're sick, maybe you're out of town. Uh, I know at least for me, uh, even, you know, in the past when I've filled in at another church or whatever it might be, it, it just feels kind of weird. It's, it's a different kind of thing. It throws everything out of whack. Uh, I know back last year when we were only doing online services and, you know, we still had our service. It was live online at the same time we have church regularly, but now I'm in my pajamas doing it, right? I'm just, it's Saturday, just kind of lounging around, not much going on, watching church in my pajamas. And it kind of throws the, the whole schedule of the day and the week out of whack. Um, there's been times, you know, in the winter when we've had to cancel service because the roads are terrible. That throws everything out of whack. Uh, so obviously, it's much better to be able to be around uh, fellow, uh, fellow Christians and have that influence. But when we're isolated from those people, we're isolated from that influence that, that points us towards Christ. When doubt starts to creep in, we almost kind of feed into that doubt. If we're isolating ourselves from even spending time in the Word and spending time in prayer— and it's just us, and we're allowing all these influences from around the world or from around us in our, uh, in our world, wh- wherever that comes from, really we're a- kind of feeding that doubt. We're not going into the Word and-, and seeing what God says about it. We're not surrounding ourselves with people who point us towards Christ. So if that st- doubt starts to creep in and we keep ourselves isolated from God in whatever way, that's only going to thrive. That doubt is going to thrive. Now, the flip side of that is that faith grows in community. Faith grows in community. And that's what I'm talking about. Like when we're able to come together here, like I don't think anybody's going to be able to live here or leave here today and say, yeah, the kids, they got their awards, but that did nothing for me, right? I'm sure we can all say that we were encouraged by that. Uh, It was exciting to see. And the fact that we're here, we're in this community and we're seeing them excited about their faith, that's going to increase our faith. Our faith grows in community. Now, at the same time, truth is never threatened by questions. Truth is never threatened by questions. So if we're thinking about doubt, maybe I'm doubting about something about God and I'm trying to figure out what it, what it is that God really says about maybe a hot topic in our culture, uh, what, what God says about really anything. And I have a little bit of doubt. Que- question it. Look into the Bible. See what it says. Read what the Bible says about that because truth is never threatened by questions. That's because truth is truth. Now, that's probably the most profound thing I'll say all morning, right? Truth is truth. Now, I say that a little tongue-in-cheek, but the fact is, like, that's actually a pretty crazy thing to say in our culture nowadays because you'll hear people say that truth is relative. That goes against the exact definition of truth, right? You can't say that's true for you, but it's not true for me. You know, the perfect example is what color is the sky? The sky is blue. And somebody say, well, that's your truth. It's not my truth. It doesn't have to be your truth. It doesn't mean the sky is not blue, Right? And so truth is truth, and, and truth can't be threatened by questions. If you question, you ask what's going on, the truth is going to come out. Where at the same time, lies are threatened by questions. Why are lies threatened by questions? Because as you start asking questions, trying to, to dig deeper into what's going on, the lies that, that you're being fed from wherever, that's going to start crumbling. Because there's no foundation to those lies. They're, they're not true. And really, kind of, you know, that's really what... Thomas is doing here. He's asking questions. So the fact that he's doubting isn't necessarily, it's, it's not a bad thing that he's doubting. And why do we know that it's, it's not a bad thing that he's doubting? Well, first of all, our response, it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to ask questions because we don't see, when we read through this, we don't see that Jesus rebukes Thomas for doubting. 
He says, you believe me because you were able to see me and you touched me. Blessed even more are those who believe me without seeing. Um, but he doesn't get after him like, how dare you not believe what they said to you? You know, how dare you not believe them when they said that I was here? Um, and it, you know, when I think about it, it's really kind of cool how the whole fact that Jesus visited the disciples first when Thomas wasn't there, it's all about this teaching moment for Thomas and for us as well because Jesus knew everything he knew when he was visiting the disciples that Thomas wasn't there. He could have just as easily visited him when Thomas was there and when everyone was there, so there wouldn't be any doubt. But he, he does it this way, and in doing so, he's able to kind of teach Thomas this lesson. But again, he doesn't scold him, doesn't get after him for doubting. Um, so first of all, it's important to remember that it's okay to ask questions. You know, why do you believe the Bible is true? That's something that comes up a lot uh, with teenagers, and, uh, you know, that's something that, when, you know, the teens in the youth group, they're trying to witness to their friends in school or people, neighbors, whatever it is, or they're trying to just talk to people about the Bible, that's one of the questions that's going to come back to them. That goes the same for all of us. There's no age limit to those questions, um, but that's something that they really kind of struggle with a lot, and those questions are going to come back to us. Well, why do you believe the Bible is true? And we need to have an answer to that. Well, is the Bible reliable? Turn real quick with me to First Peter chapter 1, or Second Peter chapter 1. We're going to find out if the Bible's reliable. So 2 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to read a handful of verses here, starting in verse 16. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16 says... For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father, the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice came which, from he, which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So basically, we understand that the Bible, it's not just, you know, coming from all these different guys and their own different perspectives. God is writing the Bible through them. And we could go to countless other passages and kind of get an idea of whether or not we can trust the Bible, whether or not the Bible is reliable. Uh, we know that the Bible is inspired by God. It was breathed into, the, into the, the writers who actually wrote down the words. But so when it comes to those questions of why do, I, why do you believe the Bible is true? Is the Bible reliable? These are all things that it's okay to look into because if this is something that we truly believe and we truly believe it, that's going to turn out into how we live our lives. If we're basing our lives and how we live our lives on the Bible, we should know what the Bible says about things. We shouldn't be afraid to look into it and, and question things. And we know that even we're supposed to test the Bible to what we hear people say, whether that's, you know, preachers on a Sunday morning, uh, somebody writing a book uh, that, that, you know, is kind of reflecting on the Bible, a Bible study, whatever it is, you hear somebody say something, we should be able to look in the Bible and see that this matches up with what they're saying, okay? So is the Bible reliable? How do we know the Bible is true? These are kind of the same, it, having these questions or even doubts, it's not a bad thing to have these doubts, 
But if you have them, ask the questions. Look into the Bible. Um, and the truth that we learn from Thomas is that our hearts do not lead us to truth, but God's truth should lead our hearts. So our hearts, our feelings, right? Feelings change all the time, okay? So we shouldn't be making our choices throughout our lives based on how we feel about something because we wake up tomorrow, we, should feel, we might feel differently, completely differently about the decision that we made. And so our hearts do not lead us to truth, but God's truth should lead our hearts. We should absorb the, the word of God, just like the kids, you know, showed us as an example this morning. They took that, those Bible verses, they memorized those Bible verses, and now they have that in their hearts and they can use that truth to make their decisions. Their, God's truth leads their hearts in their decisions that they make. So first we looked at uh, Peter, then Matthew, and we just finished up Thomas. We're going to look at one more guy, uh, one more disciple who, uh, we don't always, who doesn't always get a lot of attention, but that disciple is Andrew. Andrew. So go uh, to John chapter 1, and we're going to read a few verses there. Um, as you're going to John chapter 1, a little bit of a background of Andrew. We know that he is the brother, the brother of Peter, um, and in being Peter's brother, he kind of lived in Peter's shadow. If we know that Peter, he's the leader, kind of like the, the front man for the disciples, that alone means that Andrew's going to be in his shadows. Even if he's kind of the second guy, he's still going to be in his brother's shadows. Um, uh, another thing that we know about Andrew, he's known for his compassion. And we see that when we see him mentioned in the, the different gospels, we can see his compassion shown. Uh, we also know that he was a follower of John the Baptist before he followed Jesus. But really, he's actually, he's most known for bringing people to Jesus. So bringing people to Jesus is what Andrew is known for. Uh, and we're going to read a couple verses here in John chapter 1, verses 41 and 42. It says there, He first findeth his own brother Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. So right away, the first, we see Andrew here. He sees Jesus. He finds Jesus. And again, we know that he's a follower of John the Baptist. What was John the Baptist there to do? Pave the way for Jesus, to point people towards Jesus. So he's under kind of John's teaching there, and he sees Jesus. He recognizes him. This is the Messiah. This is the guy that we've been looking for. So he goes back, gets his brother Peter, and he brings him to Jesus. Why does he go and get his brother and bring him to Jesus? Because, again, he's the Messiah. He goes says, you have to see this guy. You have to meet him. Uh, this is the guy that we need to stick to like glue. So he loved people and knew that they needed Jesus. And also, if we were to turn to John chapter 6, read a couple verses there. John chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. It says, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? This is when the feeding of the 5,000 took place. Andrew is the one who found this kid who had this food, and he brought him to Jesus. Now, I'm sure some of the other disciples, they kind of looked at him when he brought this kid with this little amount of food. They see the multitude in front of him. They're like, yeah, that's great, he has food, but why even bother bringing him to us because he has hardly anything? Barely has enough for himself. And so, but Andrew, he didn't even think about that. He, he trusted that Jesus could use him. He trusted that Jesus could, could use what he had to offer to everybody around him. So what was Andrew's impact? Uh, first of all, he was always kind of in the background. Again, remember, he kind of was in Peter's shadow. He was kind of in the background until somebody needed to come to Jesus, whether it was Peter to, to come to Jesus to follow after him or this, this little boy who has this food to, to supply for the multitude that was there. But he's always kind of in the background, and then he shows up, and he's doing something amazing, bringing people to Jesus. Um, also, obviously, he brought Peter to Jesus. 
Okay, we've already touched on that, but the fact that Peter is basically the front man for the disciples, he brought, you know, one of the guys that we read most about among the disciples, he brought him to Jesus. If Andrew hadn't done that, who knows if Peter would have uh, come to follow after Jesus. Also, uh, I mean, because of this, he probably had the most under-the-radar impact for Jesus' ministry on earth. Because he's not, you know, one of these guys out front who's always saying, you know, there's James, you have John, uh, Peter, obviously. But because of that, you might think he doesn't have that big of an impact, not that big of an effect. Well, again, he brought Peter, who had a huge influence on, on the early church. I mean, you think about the day of Pentecost. Peter was the one preaching there. He brought Peter to Jesus. Uh, he, he brought this kid who led to Jesus performing this amazing miracle, having this influence on thousands of people. Um, so if you want to think of it, you know, I, I'm a big fan of sports, so I always kind of think of things in, in, in terms of sports. Uh, so if I lose you for a minute, just hang on, we'll be right back. But basically, I think of it, he's not really a big hitter, right? He's more of that small ball kind of guy. Bunts to get on base, steals second, and that's, he's not going to hit it out of the park, right? He's not going to do this amazing big thing. He's not the one who's stepping out of the boat walking on water. But he's doing all these little things that ends up accomplishing uh, what, what Jesus was trying to do in his ministry. So our response to Andrew, what is our plan? Andrew, he knew, I just need to bring people to Jesus. I can't, maybe I'm not the one who can get out in front of people and talk. I'm not as influential as Peter, but at the very least, I can bring people to Jesus. And if someone comes to Jesus, that interaction is not going to be bad for them. It's only ever going to be good. Um, so if you want to be like Andrew, invite people to church, share the gospel, serve people around you, support missions. Um, but the truth that we learn from Andrew is that our faith should not be private, a private matter, but a public service. So our faith isn't just for us. Andrew found Jesus first, and he, he didn't want to just keep him to himself. He went and found his brother and said, you've got to see this guy. He's bringing all these people to Jesus all the time. His faith in Jesus, his relationship with Jesus wasn't just for him. He, what he learned from that, how he grew from that, he went out and found other people like, you can't miss out on this. You have to be a part of this. And so that's how we can look to Andrew and kind of learn from him and maybe be like him. So kind of wrapping it all up, looking at, we only looked at four of the disciples here, um, but they all kind of answer, you know, different questions that we might have, or we can probably find something that we can relate to them in one way or another. So again, we looked at Peter, Matthew, Thomas, and Andrew, um, and obviously the common denominator in all of them, overcoming their perceived obstacles, because it might have been an obstacle to them, it might have been an obstacle to other people, right? Other people seeing that Matthew, this tax collector, is following Jesus, like that's never going to work out because he's a sinner, because he's a tax collector. So the obvious common denominator in them overcoming their perceived obstacles was Jesus. You know, Peter learned that regardless of what his past looked like, he was still able to go out and fulfill the calling that was given to him originally by Jesus and be a huge part of the early church, like we mentioned, the day of Pentecost, when all those people uh, came to know Jesus, came to accept the gospel. Matthew was chosen to follow after Jesus in his earthly ministry, even though what he did for a living caused people to kind of look down on him and, and perceive him as a sinner. Uh, he also saw that the wealth that comes from a personal relationship with Christ is far greater than any earthly possession or wealth that he could obtain. Thomas doubted the disciples when they told him that they had seen Jesus, but when Jesus came, Jesus didn't rebuke Thomas. Instead, uh, he encouraged him to, to trust, to see the truth for himself, to look out for the truth, search for the truth. He encouraged him to see the truth for himself, and Jesus taught him that it's okay to doubt, but always seek the truth. And then Andrew, he might not have had the star power some of the other disciples had, but he understood the power of Christ. He knew that he had to bring everyone he knew to Jesus so that they could get to know him and be used by him. Every one of us is something in our life that might seem as an obstacle to us. 
Or maybe somebody else in our life who has said, oh, you, you, that, that doesn't make sense for you because of this. Now, if you have somebody in your life like that, that's not a very good influence, obviously. Um, but we all have something in our life that, that might seem as an obstacle to follow after Jesus or to be used by him in evangelism or some kind of ministry. But the fact is God has called us because he wants a personal relationship with us. And anything he's called us to do, he will give us the power through the Holy Spirit to do it. So when it comes to question, do we have what it takes? Do I have what it takes? It's not about what we bring to the table. That was kind of a trick question to begin with. So, gotcha, yes. Um, but uh, that was kind of a trick question. But uh, it's all about whether or not I'm willing to turn to him and allow his power to shine through and give him all the glory. So that question of, well, I don't, I don't, or you just might say, I don't have what it takes to do what God's calling me to do here. I can't be like the disciples. They would have said the exact same thing about themselves. I don't have what it takes. It's not about what we bring to the table. It's about what we allow God to do through us. So let's go ahead and pray right now. We're going to go into a time of invitation, and I pray that, um, that what we, we looked at this morning, that uh, these examples of, of the disciples, that we're able to find something that we can kind of make a connection with. We can see ourselves in one of these four examples, whether God's calling us to, uh, to be a witness for him, whether there's somebody in our lives that we know that he is calling us, I want you to, to share the gospel with this specific person. You know, whenever we're around that person, we kind of feel that pull by the Holy Spirit. And we might think, well, I don't have the right words to say. I don't know what to say. I can't do that. He's calling us to do it. He can use the power of the Holy Spirit through us to do that, to be that witness. Maybe he's calling us to serve in a ministry. And we might say, well, you know, maybe he's calling you to teach in a ministry. Well, I'm not that great at talking. I can't be, I can't be a teacher. Uh, well, God was able to use people in the Bible who weren't great at talking and lead thousands of people. If he's calling us to do it, he's going to be able to, he can make it happen through the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. Or maybe you fall in the category of you're not a follower of Christ. You haven't accepted the gift of salvation. And the reason you haven't is because you're thinking, well, my past is unforgivable. I've done too many crazy things. Like, God can't save me. There's countless instances in the Bible where we can look and see that some people did way worse things. The greatest person that we can probably look to as an example in the Bible is Paul. He even called himself the chief among sinners. He was a persecutor of Christians, and God turned him around to where he wrote the majority of the New Testament, was the first real missionary that we know about, and reached thousands and thousands of people in his face-to-face ministry. But think about all the millions of people that he's reached through his writing of most of the New Testament. So God can use us no matter what, and, and there's nothing in your past that's unforgivable. And so wherever you fall in, in one of those three things, just understand that it, it's not about what we bring to the table. It's about turning to God, allowing his power to work through us. So let's go ahead and pray, and we'll go into a time of invitation. Dear God, I thank you for this morning and for bringing us out here today and just allowing us to be able to worship you, be encouraged by being around each other, uh, be encouraged by what we were able to see with the, the Word of Life kids, uh, getting their awards for... Uh, for, for trying to grow closer to you and, and, and putting you first in their life and serving those around them and, and learning the Bible, memorizing the Bible, God. And I just praise you for that. And thank you for the time of worship that we've had. And, and thank you for the word that, uh, that you've given me this morning and for, for all of us to hear, myself included, God. I just pray that if there's anybody here who's doubting that they're good enough to serve in a ministry, to witness to somebody, to take the gospel to people, or to even put their faith and trust in you, God, I just pray that we would remember that it's not about what we bring to the table. And I pray that we would just turn to you and give you all the power and just allow you to use your power through us, God, that we can see you glorified 
in whatever instance that is, God, in serving you, serving those around us, sharing the gospel, or putting our faith and trust in you. I pray that we would be able to see you glorified in that, that we would honor you in whatever it is that you're calling us to do, God. Again, be with us throughout this morning. Bless this time of invitation. Pray everything in Jesus' name. Amen.